0: Welcome to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by the law firm of Deeson, Garner, and Hanson, hosted by attorneys Sean Garner and Adam Hanson. Good morning, Yuma. This is
1: Life, Death, and the Law. I am Sean Garner, an attorney with Deeson, Garner, and Hanson, in studio with my partner, Adam Hanson, and we are going to talk about exciting topics today. One is something that is a little bit worn out and tired and it is the bailouts of these banks. We've got the Signature Bank bailout, we've got the Silicon Valley Bank bailout, and the question is, is this appropriate for the government to step in and and choose winners and losers among banks and save them from poor decision-making and bail them out, Or, or is it good for the economy in general? Is it good to stabilize the banking system? Is everything going to fall apart if the federal government doesn't step in and do this? Or should we allow them to fail? So that's one question I want to address. Another question I want to address is, is the water issue. And, and you know that I'm passionate about the water, specifically the Colorado River Basin and the lower Colorado River Basin states, Arizona, um, California, New Mexico, and uh, Nevada. And we're going to talk about what the Fed proposes to do with the shortage or, or alleged shortages that there are. And I say alleged because there's so much water right now in the mountains. Um, it's, it's at record levels. And so the water that's going to be coming downstream this year is going to be significant. And um, it still hasn't alleviated the fears of, of the drought and the mega drought that is being um, touted as the, the worst drought in a millennium. So I want to talk a little bit about that, and then I also want to talk about the the college bailout, and I know that's been belabored as well, but I want to talk about some alternatives to the college bailout and something that might make a little bit more common sense. So that's our tactic, is is common sense approach to real-world problems, that the government seems to create um, an even bigger issue out of somewhat solvable problem. So uh, let's start with uh, the college bailouts because I think that's the easiest one. The, the big question here is whether or not Joe Biden had the authority to authorize the, the payoff of loans or the forgiveness of debt of college students who acquired debt between ten dollars and $20,000. Now, of course, the debt could be much higher than that, but the forgiveness was only between Ten and twenty thousand so dollars. It was twenty thousand dollars if they'd received any Pail grants from the government, and Pail grants are based on income and uh, financial means. And so, if the student was determined at the time they received the loan to meet those standards, those requirements, then they could receive twenty thousand dollars worth of debt forgiveness. Now, of course, it's not debt forgiveness because the government doesn't own the debt the government is only securing the debt they're only on on the hook to pay off the debt if uh, the the borrower doesn't pay it off and so who is the federal government that's us the taxpayers so we're on the hook for paying it off for the the college students if they don't pay it off and I I suppose that's a good idea I like the idea of encouraging people to go to school and making loans more available for them to go to school as long as There's a cost-benefit analysis when they go to school and and determine, hey, if I take out this fifty thousand dollar loan, am I going to be able to get a job that's going to be able to pay this off, or is it going to create more of a hardship for me than just going into the workforce and and learning a trade? So if you don't have that cost-benefit analysis, you just go into the take any risk you want, and somebody else is going to bail you out. You're going to make poor decisions, and so we're incentivizing poor decisions with these. All these bailouts—that—that's the conclusion. But working more through the theory here, um, think of a a student that goes in and uh, gets the student loan. When he initially applies, he or she applies for the loan. um, They look at financial eligibility. Primarily, students that have been living with their parents—they look at the financial eligibility of their parents. Now, after they've graduated, their parents, number one, might be in a significantly different circumstance financially, so they might not qualify for the Pell Grant. Number two, the students might not have qualified for the Pell Grant because they could be making a lot more money having graduated and now obtained a degree and earning more money from that degree. But just because they earned or received money based on the Pell Grant, they're going to receive twice as much loan forgiveness as an individual who did not receive Pell Grant funds. That doesn't make any sense to me. Additionally, there already is a mechanism to assist people who get in over their heads because of either poor business decisions or um, excessive spending or because life threw a curveball at them and, and now they're financially upside down. And that solution is something that Adam and I have practiced in for years. We don't currently do that, but we we did initially early on in our careers, and that is bankruptcy. So bankruptcy has a stigma, and I want to address that just a bit here. When people get in over their head in debt, they become depressed, they lose all incentives to go to work because the debt keeps snowballing and they feel like there is no light at the end of the tunnel. And so the incentive for them to continue to work and be productive members of society is significantly reduced. So bankruptcy allows them to wipe out their debt, essentially start over. Now, lenders know that bankruptcy is an option that if they lend so much money to an individual and that individual is unable to make good on paying off that debt, then they could lose their investment in that individual. And they charge interest based on the amount of risk that they assess to that individual. And so we have willing parties entering into contracts, understanding what the outcome is going to be, that there could be a bankruptcy at the end of the line here. And one thing that is not forgivable in bankruptcy, which is particularly notable on this topic, is student loans. Student loans are not forgivable in bankruptcy. I don't know why that is, but that is the law. And it seems as if you wanted to give debtors who were really just up to their eyeballs in debt, have done everything they can to work hard and to make a a good living, but just you know, life got the better of them and they couldn't do it, then you would allow that debt to be forgiven in bankruptcy. In fact, there is a rule. It's an exception, but in bankruptcy, where if they have an excessive hardship, then they can have their student loans forgiven. However, it is rarely um, granted. I I never saw it granted in all the bankruptcies that we filed. Adam, did you?
2: No, I've never seen it. I've never seen... uh student debt discharged. In fact, the court usually will reprimand a person for even trying.
1: Right. They say, you knew when you, when you got into this, that that wasn't a forgivable debt. How hard is your hardship? How hard are you working? Are you able to do any type of repayment? Okay. Well, then it's gonna, we're going to defer the loans for a certain period of time, but it's not going to be forgiven. That's the law. You knew it when you got into it, and uh, we're not going to let you off the hook just because you don't get to buy the nice new car that you thought you deserved when you graduated college. So, one option, instead of the president unilaterally going in there and forgiving student loan, would be to propose to Congress to change the bankruptcy laws. Bankruptcy laws are largely driven by federal law. Most states have their own bankruptcy laws and exceptions, and they also have the option to allow the debtors to elect the federal exceptions. And so when I say exceptions in there, that is um, property that the debtors can keep after they filed bankruptcy. For example, you can keep up to $150,000 in Arizona of equity in your home. That's the homestead protection. You can keep... I haven't been doing an in the practice for a while, but it was at the time five thousand dollars um worth of equity in a vehicle. I believe now it's more like ten thousand dollars but um you can keep that you can keep um two thousand dollars of cash and uh you, you can also keep your social security payments and you can also keep retirement that you've put away you can also keep Uh, certain tax-deferred annuities that you've invested in for retirement purposes. So there are exceptions to what has to be liquidated to pay off the creditors when you file bankruptcy. And uh, the creditors that get dismissed are credit cards and any unsecured debt. The secured debt, for example, the debt on your home, that's not going to be forgiven because you voluntarily offered your home as collateral to secure that debt. And that's whether it's a refinance or a, a purchase loan, an initially purchased loan. So those are all clearly constructed contracts that the, the creditor and the debtor entered into, and the court is going to enforce those contracts. This An additional contract of that is student loans. Now, if a debtor came in and said, hey, listen, let's treat student loans like credit cards or an unsecured debt because literally there is no security to it. I don't have my house or a car or anything that I'm using as collateral to secure that debt. And if I'm filing bankruptcy, then I, I do have a hardship. I, I'm going through the social stigma of the bankruptcy. You have to show up publicly at a hearing and and state that you've disclosed all the assets that you own and the creditors... Have the opportunity to ex- cross examine you and say "Well are you sure are you sure you don't have additional tools or you know another hobby car or something else out there and um, so it's something that it's not an easy process to go through, although it it can create a fresh start and and a really good opportunity for individuals that just are sinking and need some relief so I believe that if congress passed an an additional bankruptcy reform that allowed student debt to be incorporated in there with the rest of debt even even clump it in with credit card debt then that would be a much more reasonable approach than just wiping out ten to twenty thousand dollars of debt of all these students who acquired it regardless of what their financial need is there is no financial requirement and and hardship to be proven in order to get this debt relief there is in some sense, um, some financial eligibility because they have to show that they're not making over a certain amount of money. I believe if they're making over $120,000. Then the debt relief is reduced and over $250,000 and they, they don't get any debt relief. But you and I know that there are many professionals that can make a lot of money in reality and use a lot of benefits and live like millionaires but show on their taxes that they don't actually make very much. You know, Donald Trump is our perfect example of that. He's a billionaire but on his taxes he makes very little. So the tax returns is not a very good indicator of whether or not you qualify for debt relief. I I just think that if if you truly do have a burden well then file bankruptcy and let's allow that student debt to be clumped in as part of bankruptcy bankruptcy is going to be the refiner's fire that's going to really determine if you do have a hardship.
2: I like that proposal because the alternative where you have a president or executive branch that says, well, I'm just going to unilaterally take all of your money, all those that pay taxes in the United States of America, and then pay off a certain portion, if not all, of student debt that's out there, that's akin to theft, in my opinion. We've talked about this before, the proper role of government in our lives, right? And if I can't go to my neighbor's house and say, hey, cough up ten to $20,000 because I need to pay my other neighbor on the other side of us, he's got a lot of student debt. So I'm going to take $10,000 from you and I'm going to give it to him. I, I can't do that to my neighbor. So what allows the president or the executive branch to take my money that I pay in taxes and then pay off some other person that I don't even agree with or uh, no, uh, their student debt. I, that's a weird concept to me. And if we were to do that, go door to door and ask people to cough up $10,000 uh, to apply towards some some random person's student debt, I doubt you'd get a lot of offers for that. I like the idea of private giving. We've talked about this before. Allow charitable people to come out and, and uh, help with that. And that happens every day. And, and they, they don't get a lot of acknowledgment or even credit. Because it's not known, they people around us that are giving or um, being charitable rarely want their name in the newspaper or want to be known what they're doing. Oftentimes, they'll they'll do it just because they want to pass on good throughout uh, our society. So I I would say um, what what I would agree with you, Sean, in the sense that uh, they have an executive branch is unilaterally take care of debt and act like it's some great. You know, um, gift to mankind. I, I think that's a little overreaching.
1: So let's get back to what was his incentive to do this? Because he could have gone to Congress. Joe Biden is, you know, the president we're talking about. He could have gone to Congress and he could have gotten a law enacted that forgave student loans or, more appropriately, Opened up the bankruptcy rules to allow student debt to be forgiven. He didn't do either of those. So, what do you think his incentive was not to go to Congress, not to go through the proper means, even if I mean I don't agree with Congress necessarily taxing and, and choosing winners and losers, but um, only taxing for the purpose of you know national defense and, and maintaining security of the state. However. Um, it is what it is right now with taxation, so the the appropriate means in the society that we live in right now and and the and the days and the times that we're living in is Congress to make those rules. so the president doing what was his incentive what do you think
2: well it's it's the akin to paying off voters it's i'm going to pay you
1: the timing of it was pretty
2: pay you money yeah. in order to garnish your vote the next cycle, and that's what we've seen for the from this administration I think since the get go is uh, a lot of the action is based on perceived notion that if i do this for the voting base then they're going to again vote for me or this will bring them into our arena because we allowed for uh you know no no uh, prosecution when a person crosses the border illegally we pay off your debts free everything everything's free um, that's that's the mentality. It feels like, I don't know if that's, you know, you asked my opinion, that, that's what it looks like. I think uh, most people are aware of that. They, when they see things like what we're seeing, it's like, okay, it's, that's an obvious um, move to garnish more votes the
1: next election cycle. So it's a political move. It's not that he has compassion for the students that are suffering from this o- overburdensome debt. It's just a political move to gain more votes.
2: What's interesting is, is if you were to look at these politicians that are putting in place or clamoring for these types of policy reforms or uh, things that uh, we f- would find pretty radical, if you look at them personally, I doubt they give hardly anything. And that's been proven over and over again of charitable intent of their own money. They rarely give. But yeah, they're free to give of my money and your money, our taxpayer dollars. But when it comes down to them, if I were to go to them and say, hey, why don't you cough up $20,000 and give it to this guy to relieve his student debt, I doubt I'd have any takers in, in, uh, in Congress in or Congress the presidency. Or, yeah. yeah. And so it's easy to do these things when it's not their personal money. And you and I, Sean, have both been in positions where we've had to oversee a purse of money. And when we do that, the fiduciary responsibilities that we have to that that body that we are watching over that money for are extremely high. And we, you and I, we've talked about this before. We regard that as like, uh, you know, what would you call that? Sacred, sacred Sacred funds. funds. Absolutely. You you do not, that's not my money. And it's got a very specific purpose. And every cent, not dollar, every cent needs to be accounted for and um, shown to the public or whoever you're, you're watching that, so that they can do an audit at any time and make sure that everything's kosher, right?
1: Oh yeah, we have the Adult Protective Agency that will come and prosecute if um, we haven't properly not only used the funds for our beneficiaries' benefit, but actually given an accounting of how we use the funds. It, it's not enough to show that we, we didn't do anything bad. We have to show that we did everything right. And I think that's appropriate we are entrusted with these funds for vulnerable individuals and we have this high standard to use those funds appropriately and we have to demonstrate that we did that and i don't have any problem when i'm asked to give an audit for every dollar every cent that has been spent because i keep a good accounting of what the money is spent for but why is this um, responsibility that is on me personally that has nothing to do with our national security and our national debt and bigger issues that our whole country faces, why is that same level of responsibility not attributed to the president or Congress?
2: We got to go to break. This is Life, Death, and Law,
0: 560 AM KBLU. More thought provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death, and the Law, right here after this. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row.
2: Welcome back. This is Life, Death, and the Law, 560 AM KBLU. I'm attorney Adam Hanson. I'm with uh, my partner in crime, uh, attorney Sean Garner, and then we've got Cody Beeson as well in the the studio today. In the last segment, we were talking a lot about uh, solutions to the proposed forgiveness of student debt that uh, the current administration has proposed. And Sean's um, idea was, well, let's not just unilaterally forgive student debt with the wave of a wand, a magic wand, but rather let's use the, the system that we've already got in place, which would entail basically bankruptcy law. And Sean mentioned, be, like before, Sean and I were in bankruptcy law. We did a lot there years ago. We don't practice in that anymore. However, it really set us up and, and gave us a good understanding, a foundation for the law that we practice today, which is estate planning. So when families come in, they they uh, sit down with us and we're able to put together plans. We're also able to look at creditor issues that might arise or might cause an issue down the road. And those those uh, recommendations that we have for a certain family are, are really derived from our knowledge of bankruptcy law from years ago. And so bankruptcy law, like Sean mentioned before, is kind of Uh, a stigma out there but in reality it was created by the founders of our country and and it's a
1: social stigma if you if you say you filed bankruptcy right
2: but really it's to start again it's a new start and you can do it as a business you can do it as an individual most of the ones that we did in fact i think all of them if i remember correctly the bankruptcies that we filed were all chapter seven individual uh bankruptcies we didn't get into when, when you get into corporate bankruptcy, it gets really sticky and nasty. Yeah,
1: Chapter 11 and Chapter 13 bankruptcies are, are very uh, complex, and that's when a uh, corporation wants to continue. An individual can file as well, but it's generally when you want to continue paying off the debts but at a reduced um, amount. So right. the, the, the bankruptcy court will get a proposal from the debtor and uh, they'll consider, okay. Everybody gets forty percent of what they are owed, and this debtor is going to have an extended period of time to pay that forty percent as opposed to pennies on the dollar, which would happen in a chapter seven liquidation bankruptcy
2: and so the moral of this particular story is that what sean is saying and i I wholeheartedly agree with you having been in that world of bankruptcy before, that bankruptcy should be a better solution for what what we're seeing in the student debt world. And uh, the problem with that is, is currently, bankruptcy law does not allow student loans to be forgiven. So that's one of the exceptions to bankruptcy is student loans, you've got taxes, you've got child support. So there's several um, exceptions to bankruptcy, meaning if I were to file bankruptcy and say, hey, I can't afford to pay all my debts, I need them wiped out, I need to start again, It's going to do a huge number on my credit, my credit score, right? But at the same time, it wipes out all these debts and clears all these debts out. Well, some of those that are not going to be cleared out are, at this point in time, as the current law states, um, taxes, back taxes that I owe. There's going to be um, student debt, uh, student loans that I, I still have to pay. Those fly right through bankruptcy. They don't get discharged and uh, alimony, child support type payments. So there are several uh, exceptions to the bankruptcy law. What I hear you say, Sean, is let's just use the law that we've already got and tweak it a little
1: bit to fit what needs to be done. Number one, use Congress to actually change the law instead of having the president make laws. And then we already have a legal format in place, which is bankruptcy, that we can update if students are drowning in student loans, to incorporate in the bankruptcy laws and, and make it, it doesn't have to be a blanket um, forgiveness if they file bankruptcy. It could be demonstrate some type of hardship, which there already is a hardship exception in bankruptcy if you demonstrate that for student loans, but it's seriously difficult to meet those requirements, and I never saw one met in all the bankruptcies that I filed in, early on in my career.
2: And that's a perfect segue into the next, the next topic that we want to talk about, and that was the banking crisis that we've seen with Silicon Valley Bank going under and then uh, a couple other banks going under. Recently, the proposal is, well, w- what we heard from the president's mouth is you don't have to worry. Anybody in that bank doesn't have to worry. We're going we're gonna to give all your money back, even if it exceeded the $250,000 FDIC-insured limit that was put in place in 2010 through the Dodd-Frank legislation in response to the 2008 crisis, the, the meltdown, uh, the financial crisis. So during the Obama years, the Obama administration was able to push forward Dodd-Frank, which was increased regulatory um, structure on banks that want to participate in the FDIC system. So FDIC is an insurance body that uh, if, if I'm a bank and I want to provide insurance the extent that if i go under my customers they are going to be at least covered up to $250,000 for each depositor and each account in my in my bank then i have to pay a certain fee to the fdic to have federal backing there and and that's the way that that would work so it is possible for a bank not to be part of the fdic system but you and i as customers of that particular bank might be a little wary in the event of a financial meltdown that, hey, I'm banking with a bank that doesn't participate in the FDIC system, they don't, they don't have my back. If they go under, then there goes my money, basically. It's akin to investing in a stock that goes under and, and dies, and you don't get your money back. That happened to me once from experience. So it was a real good one, too. That's what my dad assured me. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is gonna be the next big thing. I'm like, okay. So I put some money in there. Yeah, within like six months, it's bankrupt. And so I had, to, I, I had a quick lesson, and uh, I thought, surely my money would come back
1: somehow. However, that lesson was just that, a lesson. Are you more cautious about where you put your money now? Yes. And that's the whole point, right? Allow people to suffer the consequences of their actions, and you get an enlightened, a more cautious, a more um, trustworthy people. You save people, children, adults, it doesn't matter, from the consequences of their actions and you get more reckless actions in the future. Is that what we want to incentivize? That's exactly what we're doing. I mean, we're incentivizing reckless behavior. We're incentivizing people to be very careless with their money and their investments, their depositors' money, and there's no consequences for it.
2: But why, why do you say that?
1: Why do I say that? Because the the federal government is coming in and billing them out. They're not allowing the bank to fail. They're not, not allowing the depositors to suffer the pinch of investing in a bank that is not financially sound or is not practicing financially sound um, services and investments. So that's what you, you want people to be free. That's what we want. We say freedom all the time. Now, freedom sounds good. It sounds like a, a, a word that, in my mind, a vision of running through a field of, of wheat and daisies. You know, you're free, but it's not. Freedom, With clothes or without clothes. Yeah, we're not going to get there. But uh, (laughs) it's accountability. Freedom is I get to choose what I get to do, and the consequences are on me. And so the federal government doesn't get to choose what I do. Nobody else gets to choose what I do, state government, local government. But when I make mistakes, I suffer the consequences of those mistakes. And that's, that's how freedom works. And... Fortunately, we've demonstrated through this experiment of a free government that freedom allows innovation. and In fact, it not only allows innovation, but it incentivizes innovation. And we have had a more productive society and people in America over the past 200 years than ever in the history of the world because of freedom. But what we're doing right now is we're taking away a a, a critical component of freedom, and that is accountability for our actions. We're not allowing for people to fail. And you can't take away the accountability without taking away the freedom itself. Because when we take away the accountability of the banks, then we are causing other individuals to pay for those mistakes. And when I have to pay for somebody else's mistakes, I no longer have the freedom to use my money as I choose. When I have to pay for students that borrowed more money than they could pay back or are willing to pay back, then I have to pay for their bad decisions. That's not freedom. That's now me working as an indentured servant to the federal government so they can decide what to do with the production that I create.
2: I think freedom is synonymous with consequences and that sounds stupid but as I was thinking this thought through as you're talking I'm thinking with freedom comes you have to be willing to accept the consequences and consequences I think often that word alone it kind of imbues negativity but it's not always a negative consequence if I go to go to the gym every morning and I work hard and I eat right then the consequence of that is a good consequence, that my body should be toner, I should be more healthy, right? But if I sit on the couch every day and eat potato chips and watch uh, TV for hours and hours, then that's probably going to have a negative consequence on my body. So freedom is synonymous with consequences. And I feel like the government has this idea that they are trying to, and rightfully so, I mean, the government's job, and their in its opinion, I guess, is to protect us, right? I would argue that they're they're supposed to be protecting us from foreign powers, invading and and blowing us up
1: and and domestic terrorists, sure, individuals who want to take away our life or our property, they should have police forces that protect against that
2: but it comes in the name of locking everything down, so we're going to protect you financially by creating this banking system that also has. Uh, an insurance policy that backs everything up because we know it's for your own good and we don't want you to get harmed kind of thing. Sometimes, and those of you that have kids have experienced this, when you have a kid and they start to walk, one of the most detrimental things you can do to that child is to help them walk. They have to fall. They have to get up, stumble, fall, hurt themselves a couple times, even when they're learning to ride a bike. Through that process of trial and error and hurt, they begin to learn the mechanics of walking and riding a bike. It, and that principle goes throughout our whole life, no matter if you're a little infant or you're an adult in the banking world. You have to learn the idea or the consequences of your actions somehow. And if you have a, a government that's constantly there to get your back and to bail you out, as I'm saying this, I'm thinking of myself as as a parent to my own kids and how I... Yeah. I probably should change my parenting ways. Step
1: in when they make mistakes. Yeah.
2: Um, And that's that's, uh, detrimental to their progress, right? I try not to be that parent. I I know you're pretty good at it, Sean. Um, You're better than I am. I'm I'm not a very good parent. But uh, I try not to step in and solve my kids' problems. Um, But it's hard. It's hard when you see them hurting, right? And so the government, I mean, I think that's the contrary argument to what you're saying is that, well, we're here to protect you. And we know better than you because we have these agencies that we put in place and all these experienced professionals that know, know uh, what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. And therefore, we know you're inevitably going to make some stupid decision, but we want to protect you. So
1: Yeah, and unfortunately, all the people in those administrations or most come from academia. And in academia, they practice on theory. And that's not real life real life shows what actually works. You can have a theory of how wheat should grow, but you're not going to really know unless you're out there planting it, irrigating it, weeding it, and then harvesting it at the end of the year and and doing it year after year to see what actually works. So we have these theorists that are running the government and the people that are actually producing out in the rest of the the country and we're being governed by people that don't really have real-life experience as to how things work. And that's that's the major downfall. We've got to take a break. This is
0: 560 AM TVL. More thought-provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death, and the Law, right here after this. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row.
1: Welcome back. This is Life, Death, and the Law. I'm Sean Garner, attorney with Deason, Garner, and Hanson. We do estate planning, and we are in no way qualified to talk about water, but we're going to do it anyway. So, um, Adam, we have a field that is surrounding our building, at least to the north and to the east of us, it's a beautiful alfalfa field at some seasons. Um, they plant other crops during other seasons. And uh, there's sheep in the field at, at times as well. And I love it. I love driving up to our office and seeing that land in production. In fact, I know the farmer personally that is that is farming that land. The owners of the land are not the farmers of the land. I know that for a fact. And... Uh, Right now, we've got this issue with the Colorado River where there's less water flow than there is people taking withdrawals and uh, using through irrigation and uh, watering their crops from the river. So there's a problem. And it's not, in, in my mind, it's not as catastrophic as it looks from looking at Lake Mead and looking at Lake Powell where they're down 75%. Because the the river flow is not down 75%. And when you just look at those large reservoirs, it would lead to that conclusion. But rather the conclusion is we're taking out 10 maybe even 5% more water than there is coming down the river. And so the reservoirs are consistently going down. And what we need to do is take the same amount that is coming through the rivers. We don't need to take less than is flowing in the rivers because then the reservoirs would be overflowing and there would be flooding. So how much less flow is there in the rivers? In the past 20 years, they say that this is a historical drought. It's a mega drought. And they use these terms for shock and awe factor because it sells. You know, terror sells more efficiently than good news or even accurate news. And so it's about 10 percent less over the past 20 years that the river is um, flowing than than it had been. And when you look at going back a hundred years, two hundred years, five hundred years, through measuring the rings on the trees you can determine what the water flow was and uh, they've, they've been fairly accurate at least as far as I know, I'm not a scientist, in determining that on average there's about 17 million acre-feet of water flowing down the Colorado River. But the problem is we've allocated um, all of that and we haven't addressed for evaporation, we haven't addressed for seepage you know, into the ground and other issues where we we can't actually allocate all that 17 million acre-feet. Really what we can allocate is about 14 million acre-feet. And so what we need to do is proportionately, the states have apportioned who gets what water through several compacts. And in the upper Colorado River Basin states, they've decided Utah gets a certain portion, Colorado gets a certain portion, Wyoming gets a certain portion. And if there's less water to apportion out, then everybody proportionately reduces their share. That makes absolute sense to me. In fact, it's so easy that I think that a fifth grader would come up with that solution as the very first one out out of the gate. However, in um, Arizona and California, New Mexico, and uh, Nevada, we have this very complicated system where if there's a shortage in water, Arizona takes the first big brunt of the hit, and then Nevada takes a brunt, then New Mexico takes it, then Mexico, which we have to allow 1.5 million acre-feet to go to Mexico as well, they take it, and last is California. And until Arizona has actually taken a 50% reduction in its water allocation, California will not take any significant percent, and that's currently California's proposal. The federal government said the river is being overtaxed right now. It's being overused. And so the reservoirs are dropping so low that we can't use them for what they were intended for, which is, number one, to provide water in dry years, and number two, to provide clean power through the hydroelectric generators in the dams. And so we need to allow those those reservoirs to refill. So you can't be taking out as much water. Well, Arizona and Colorado and Utah and Wyoming and all the other six states got together and said, okay, well, we have to... Account for the evaporation that is occurring. And it is about 1.5 million acre feet of evaporation. So, what we have done is we have allocated water that we are really not getting. It is not going downstream and it is not being caught in the reservoirs. It is evaporating in the air or it is sinking down into the ground. And so, we have to account for that and we have to reallocate our apportionments between the states. And so, Arizona and all the other six states said we are going to reapportion it proportionately for the amount of water that we've agreed with in our compacts and California said no absolutely not we're not going to number one acknowledge that there's one point five million acre feet that we did not um, account for evaporating and we're not going to take a bigger cut we're not going to take a proportional cut we will reduce our our share by only four hundred thousand acre feet and when you count that to 4 million acre-feet is what they get. They get 4.2 million acre-feet. That's nothing. And they want Arizona eventually to take a 50% reduction in its share of the allocation from the Colorado River before they'll even take a 13% reduction. And so California just really isn't willing to budge. They're not willing to cooperate. But they're such a political giant in in the national political field that when the feds come in, they're unwilling to cross California. So instead of saying, California, hold on, what's going on in California right now? Record snowfall in the mountains. Record rainfall in the valleys. You, all of your reservoirs are nearly at 100%. Several of your reservoirs are over 100%. Lake Oroville is letting water, water out. Um, Folsom Lake is letting water out to prepare for the the excessive runoff that is going to be coming down from the mountains, you have water and to spare in your own reservoirs, plus you've had a forty billion dollar bond that was created in two thousand and fourteen to create the site's dam and reservoir, which you have not built to allow more water conservation and preservation for dry seasons. so California, not only do you have enough water but you you've failed to take steps to allow for um, more reasonable and efficient allocation of your resources. Arizona is using every drop of water that it gets. And so it can it, it needs to be more efficient and look for technology to be more efficient for its crops, which is, it's constantly doing, but it can't create more water. It can't actually store more water because it's not receiving any. So you have to look at where the solutions lie. And California should know that of all people because they look at hey, there's a disparity in um, the income gap, and so we need to tax the rich more than the poor, and we need to reallocate wealth, but they're unwilling to do it with water. I don't understand how that concept doesn't cross over to the fields here, but it doesn't. Um, Either way, the feds are going to step in, and one of the proposals of the feds is to pay the farmers to not use their fields. And that's called fallowing your fields. When you don't use your fields for crop production, you're fallowing your fields. And uh, they actually haven't come down yet with a a specific dollar figure, but it's anywhere between $500 per acre foot of water to $1,500 per acre foot of water. Now, if you get to $1,500 per acre foot of water, a traditional field, like a wheat field, might have five acre feet of water. So for each acre of land that it has, that's water five feet tall. That's how much allocation it would receive from the Colorado River a year to grow its wheat during certain seasons, alfalfa during other seasons. So it's feeding both for human consumption and for cattle and for goats and sheep and all other types of livestock that that eat that. And so um, that's what they're offering these farmers to receive to not produce. Now, what happens if the federal government gives that money for them not to produce it? Number one, where does the money come from? Federal government doesn't make any money. They take it from us. So it comes from the taxpayers to pay these farmers not to produce. Then what happens? Well, oftentimes, as with the case with the land right around our building, the farmers don't own the land. Landowners are not the farmers. So the landowners, they get that 15 per acre foot, and the farmers who are actually planting the seeds, irrigating, weeding it, and then harvesting it and paying all the people to harvest and the truck drivers to go and to take the produce to the coolers and then to ship it across the country to the grocery stores where we buy it or the restaurants where we eat it or the cattle farms where um, the cattle are fed with the hay, all of those people in between are out of work. So you got the truckers are out of work. You've got the restaurants where the truckers stop, they're out of work. You've got the grocery stores that are having to hike up the prices. And at the end, we've got higher prices for groceries, higher prices when we go out to restaurants. So you go out to restaurants less often. So you've got people working at restaurants, and you've got restaurants going out of business. All of this has a trickle-down effect, and it's all negative. Then you look at the field itself. When a field is in production, when water is being poured on it, instead of allowing to pass through and go into the ocean um, which california is doing it's pumping four million acre feet of water out of the colorado river and then it's letting its own water come down from its mountains and flow right into the ocean so instead of allowing the water could go in the ocean we're saying let's put it on our land and then let's allow that land to stay fertile and so it doesn't turn into dust and blow off and become totally desolate that seems like a pretty good idea to me don't let the cattle starve. Don't let the people go hungry and inflation skyrocket. Let's let the water not flow into the ocean and put it on the land instead and keep everybody employed. But apparently that is not a good idea for some reason. And The federal government wants to pay landowners not to produce. That to me is it's on par for what the federal government's decisions are, and, and that means absolutely idiotic. Let the landowners figure it out proportionately reduce the amount of allocation that they are receiving so we can get to stability and allow the reservoirs to fill back up so we can have this clean hydroelectric electricity, which California uses a lot of, and we can have consistency with the producers that allow our economy to thrive and allow us to have food on our tables and allow us to feed the animals that participate in the great environment that we live in. That's all the time that we have for today. This is Life,
0: Death, and the Law, 560 AM, KBLU. If you have questions or want to know more about something that was discussed today, please call the law firm of Decent, Garner & Hanson at 928-783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com.